calling me down the road is where i'll always be and every stop i make i make a new friend can't say for long just turn around and i'm gone again ladies maybe tomorrow i'll want to settle down until tomorrow i'll just keep moving on do 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 Welcome to episode 28 of Not So Much The Neutral Song. I have not thought of that song in years! You're I was not even expecting it, I remembered the lyrics. Now here's the deal. We're doing City on the Edge of Forever, or as I like to call it, The Sexiest Hobos. Wrong, they are not sexy in the slightest. 100. But actually, the entirety of the plot of City and Forever is actually revealed by the lyrics of the Littlest Hobo theme song. Yeah. You're Hear totally right. There's a voice that keeps on mauling me. That's the guardian of forever calling, calling them. Not mauling. Down, <laughs> down the road is where I'll always be. So, you know, the, they're on a five-year mission to explore space and the universe. Also, they're, they're from the future. future. So they're down, down the, the road. road. Yeah. Every stop I make, I make a new friend. Which is true. We do, yeah. have, a, we do have a new person every week. <laughs> yeah. A new lady in soft, soft lighting. Um, but they can't stay for long. They just turn around and they're gone again. Yeah. In this instance, she turns and they vanish. Now, maybe tomorrow they'll want to settle down, but they can't. Also tomorrow in that they're from yes. the future. Yeah, what exactly. drove this witty and just amazing <laughs> insight, Kareen? I had a flash of, like, brilliant. Also, <laughs> as Ryan, I was watching this, trying to think of a different subtitle for this episode, <laughs> I'm like, these guys are the sexiest hobos I've ever seen. Wrong, I'm not dying sexy. to know which of the two of them you think is the German Shepherd. Hmm. She thinks it's Kirk. No, I think German Shepherds are very work-driven and loyal and dedicated, so in this scenario, the littlest hobo is Spock. Always on the outside. I have to agree. Quite fitting in. Anyhow. (laughs) Welcome to the Littlest Hobo Podcast. This is not how I was expecting this to go. (laughs) Don't worry, American friends who have no idea what we're talking about. I'm going to embed the YouTube video of the Littlest Hobo theme because that is an experience that we want to share with you. It is. Plus, you'll understand the city on the edge of forever just that much more. So, anyways, welcome to Not So Much the Neutral Zone, a Star Trek podcast (laughs) by ladies where we talk about Star Trek loudly and at great length. I am your host, Kareen, who makes brilliant analogies about the little hobo, and I'm joined as ever by the fabulous Kim. Hello. And the perfectly adequate Ari. I should get adequate, better than adequate today. I brought you donuts. They were not Tim Horton's donuts, so you're still getting adequate. Yeah, adequate. All right. Adequate. I, I, I even agree with her today. Adequate. You did adequate. And we are talking about, I think, the most critically acclaimed, fan-loved episode of the original series, The City on the Edge of Forever. It is consistently ranked number one in critics and fan choice. 
It is, by all accounts, a great piece of science fiction. Yeah. Sure. Definitely. Unpopular opinion. This is not the best episode of the original series. No, it's not the best episode of the original series. No. The one that I freaking loved with the Romulans was the best episode of the original (laughs) series. I'm going to give you a high eyebrow on that, but... Yes, I can absolutely... since we're discussing Romulans. Yes, I can absolutely see how that is a better episode of Star Trek than this. Yeah. I don't mind this episode. I surprisingly did not mind this episode either, which you is... You shock me! Which is high praise from me. That's amazing. <laughs> praise from Caesar I is high praise I, I don't think it's my favorite episode of original series, but it is a very good story. Even is as, it? I think so. As, as, a, as a piece of classic science fiction, I do think it's a very good story. I think this would have worked better had it been a novel, and we got some sense of time passing... And yeah. I didn't feel like yeah. Spock's massive computer building project slash Kirk and Edith falling deeply in love happened in about four days. So I feel like that has a lot to do with the history of how this episode came <laughs> to be. And we're going to skirt around some issues. Um, so Harlan Ellison did the first pitch for this that... Is not an episode of Star Trek. Not even remotely. No. So his original pitch was that there is a Enterprise crewman who is dealing drugs. God. Okay. Yeah. He straight up murks someone named Lebec. And then he escapes down to this planet where are there are the Guardians of Forever and accidentally changes the future. And then the Enterprise is turned into a pirate ship named the Condor. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they also go back to 1930s New York, New York. They are befriended by a legless World War I vet named Trooper, who dies in the episode. And according to the Memory Alpha article, they are slightly upset by this. <laughs> and that in the critical moment where Edith is run over by a car, Kirk is actually paralyzed with indecision. And it is Spock that make sure that the accident happens. Mm. And at the very end, Spock and Kirk are having their little moment, and it is said, no woman was offered the universe for love. Which is supposed to be consoling in some way. Yeah, how nice. She is dead. She doesn't care. Nope. So, second rewrite is that they were... (laughs) (laughs) That they were beaming down on the planet. Allison's second rewrite is that they're beaming down on the planet to execute the drug dealer... Okay. Because, oh, <laughs> yes, because he's been sentenced to death. Oh, yes, for a firing squad. Yeah, that sounds All real righty then. Yeah, and it, at the end, he's stuck into this supernova time loop where he's killed over and over and over and over and over and over again. There's also a really fun part where Spock is insulted by humans, and uh, Spock says, oh, you humans are barbarians. And Kirk says, we should have let Spock be lynched. At this point, Roddenberry got the script and went, Okay, there's one point from this second rewrite that I am totally in favor of. I love time loop episodes. <laughs> <laughs> love them. You love a Groundhog's Day? I, I've never actually seen Groundhog's Day, but I do like the Stargate SG-1 episode mm. that is a time loop, and there is a time loop episode of Next Gen three. with surprise Kelsey Grammer at the end that I yeah. absolutely love. Yes, you're right. Three. 
Yeah. And for a while, funny story, every time my cousin came over to my house and actually sat down and watched Star Trek, that was the only episode she's seen <laughs> every single time. Because she's in a loop of watching that. Wow. Yeah, it was incredibly meta. Yeah, so at this point, uh, Kara Batsos, who was the story editor at the time, did a rewrite. Uh, Jeanelle Kuhn did a rewrite. Eddie Fontana did a rewrite. Roddenberry did, I think, three Yep. Three rewrites, and according to the Memory Alpha, only two lines of dialogue from Harlan Ellison's original script remain in the episode. Wow. Which lines? Do we not know? Part of the Guardian's line about how I was here since time and suns blew up, etc., etc., etc. So, not much of the story, I guess, the fundamental kernel of ideas. I'm very much hedging around the issues because I do not want Harlan Ellison to sue me. He's kind of suing prone. He has sued... Uh, Star Trek. Yeah, okay, correction. I don't want to be sued or punched in the face <laughs> or groped by Harlan Ellison. <laughs> he seems like a very litigious <laughs> slash punchy man. Yeah. Gropey, so, don't forget gropey. Yes. If, what was the Google search that you did, Ari? <laughs> so first I looked up, because we looked at the, I looked at the Wikipedia article, and then I searched Harlan Ellison assault, and then I did another search that uh, excluded Connie... Connie Willis. Connie Willis from the results. And I still got like 700,000 results. Um, he assaulted, like, like punched in the face, assaulted, like, at least four people that and I could find them, new stories what about. Was at McDonald's? Oh, he beat the crap out of a guy at a McDonald's dressed as Grimace. <laughs> um, for the crime of offering him a coupon for a <laughs> apple pie. <laughs> apple pie. <laughs> but all right, that's because the apple pie was baked with lies. <laughs> yeah. So if you have a couple of hours to spare, <laughs> it's uh, interesting. It's a read. Mm-hmm. So when Harlan Ellison saw the finished project, he was furious. Um, he, he, he seems to be furious an awful lot. He continues to be furious about it. Um, he did not want his name on the script. He wanted it to be put under his pseudonym, Cord Wainer Bird. Which was well known to be his fuck you pseudonym. Yeah, it's a very effective one. Mm, yeah. So what we see is, although Harlan Ellison's name on it the work of many hands. And like you, Kim, I found that there was some very weird jumps in it. There's very weird jumps. There's There's some incredibly clunky dialogue. Um, And it's not the most well-crafted episode. And after hearing the amount of rewrites that it went through, I'm not surprised. No, I feel like it should have been a two-parter. I felt like it was... I argue with Ari for... An embarrassing amount of minutes because I really thought this was a two-parter because I th- feel like that there is enough too much going on for one forty-seven-minute well, episode of television. I agree. I think you said that Kim that it seemed like it took almost no time at all. Yeah. yeah, and I totally agree with that. But the thing is that you can definitely do like a single week's episode and make it feel like it takes months. I'm thinking of an SG One episode where um, O'Neill gets stranded on that planet and the Stargate gets destroyed. He's there oh, for yeah. months. It feels like months. So it's I'm not like it's impossible. Also pretty sure there's an episode of Enterprise where Paul is maybe trapped back in time or she's telling a story about somebody who's trapped back in time and she makes it feel you could, you understand that it was weeks or months rather than this felt like a couple of days. There's a Voyager one. There's, There's the uh, the episode where Picard yeah. lives an entire lifetime. Oh, yeah, yeah, There's yeah, also one, yeah. the one where Data gets thrown back to San Francisco. 
Yeah. 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 There, like, it's can be, I'm sure that there probably is another, I don't know, original series episode, but like, it could, it could have been done and it would have felt a lot. It felt both too short and too long, this episode at times. I get the feeling it felt too long. By the time we get at about the halfway point of this episode, um, it feels like everything is jumping forward at a great speed. I think that my fundamental problem with this episode is that I don't understand Edith Keeler. Yes. I don't really understand her motivation. I don't feel like she is a realized character or person. Because really at the emotional core of this episode should be her relationship with Kirk. But I didn't understand what was going on It's because her fundamental purpose in this episode is to act as an icon of inspiration. To, she's not, like, for the future, for Kirk's, like, she basically holds every, she represents everything Kirk holds dear, all of his ideals. Mm. She's not so much a person as she is just the ideas for the future that Kirk believes in, all the reasons that he believes in the Federation, and everything that he sees coming for humanity and for, you know, Earth as it evolves over the next 200, 300 years. So she's not like, so that's why she's not a person, she's an idea. But I think that if you were going to do that, and that is what they're trying in a way to do is that you had to make sure that the, the rest of the outside world is wrong or that um, they're in opposition to it because of the core of their beliefs. Mm -hmm. But it isn't the outside world is not great, but it's not terrible. I think you really had to show if you want her to be kind of like the beacon of light and hope in the episode, you had to really establish that this time was terrible. Yeah. I don't think that was even necessary. The one thing for me that would have made... Because she, she has, like, whatever, all the, the pretty speeches and everything. She sounds like a raving lunatic. Yes, thing, she does. The problem I always had with her is that you don't know anything about her. You know nothing about her. She's a do-gooder. Fine. She, run, she runs a mission. Fine. Where does she come from? What inspired yeah. her to do this? Do we? Where does she grow up? What are her parents like? Why does she believe what she believes? We don't get a single childhood reminiscence or anything like that from her. Why? How the war affected her. Anything. I think you really do need one or two line of backstory yeah. to get her from point A to point B. Because even if we just had that, I could have filled in the rest of it. Because, like, fine, it's the Great Depression. Yeah, we know what the Great Depression is like. But she doesn't feel like a real person because we don't get any personality, any reasons for her to be the way she is. I think... I definitely agree with you. I think, again, we have to keep in mind that this was broadcast in the 60s for people who lived and were born in the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. So they have a little bit more background in history. So when they say this is in the 1930s, they can immediately situate, yes, this is the worst the world has ever been. Whereas we watching in the future are like... No, I need I need the world to be a little bit more developed from this for me to accept this kind of paragon of helpingness and humanity who represents everything good that happened in the 1930s. I mean, I think I think Great Depression is a pretty like you can guess at a lot of it, but like the thing about Edith Keeler is that 
we have no reason to be upset if she dies beyond the abstract of her, you know, her death or survival destroying history. We understand that Kirk cares that she lives or dies, that's, but we don't. That's why we're supposed to care whether she lives or dies because of Kirk's feelings for her. So we're supposed to identify with Kirk and his great epic love for her. I don't think so. Like, I, I get what you're saying, Kim, but I think it's because she's a good person and she personifies the, the idea that they talk about, like, let me help you. That she is kind, that she is selfish, that she genuinely wants to help all of these people. I think my bigger problem, other than we don't understand who she is, is that she sounds like a raving lunatic. Yeah, she does. Or like she's predicting the future, which is equally strange. Yeah, she shows up at her mission and starts raving about there'll be no war and there'll be no money and we'll take spaceships to the moon. It sounds like she was hitting the bottle. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that was also the other thing that got to me about her, you know, her quote-unquote kindness and her charity towards these guys is Kirk sits down next to that guy and he's his, his reaction to her is, great, here's where we pay. And that was the price that she took from them was a captive audience to listen to her rambling. And that's... And it started out as not a great speech. She starts off, I don't want you if you're an addict. Like, okay, who are you here to help? People that you judge to be good people? I think it's very in line with the, like, with a lot of ideas about the depression, though. It's about people who are essentially just down on their luck. Yeah. And who deserved help. The deserving poor, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, sorry. <laughs> I just, I, I have a really hard time with her because, yeah, she does essentially hold these hobo hostages <laughs> to listen to her insane future predictions. Yeah. And it, I, you can cut this out. I, I just need a moment to sit down and think about what I can go from here. I'm done. We broke Kareen. This episode broke Kareen. Well, I do want to note that at the very beginning of this episode, we, I believe, see Yeoman Tamara again. Yes, she is on the bridge. So we start up on the bridge of the Enterprise doing shaky, 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 shaky. Scotty is apparently on the bridge just to watch another technician uh, who's already working on the console. (laughs) Yep. And then reporting on. Well, Scotty's got guys already. Things go wrong, remember? Shouldn't he be in. Ooh, I don't know engineering? Mm. Is he not the chief engineer? Why isn't he at the engineering spot instead of looking at a console, which some guy is already looking at? Okay, so yes, this happens a lot when the engineer comes up to the bridge in a crisis. It's one of the chief things you see Jordy doing when the ship Enterprise is under attack is walking back and forth between engineering and the bridge. So it's... Wasting precious time. It's not out of line for Scotty to be on the bridge during a crisis. It is. He's setting a poor precedent. Yeah, apparently they're experiencing turbulence. <laughs> Space turbulence. Space, Space time turbulence. turbulence. But the yeah, thing that I really like is that Spock is mapping the turbulence. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Spock. Space mapping tools. Yes, and then the helm explodes. Yeah. Things explode very easily on this spaceship. Possibly more easily than they should. More easily. Yeah, I would hope that they had figured out, like, circuit breakers on a spaceship. <laughs> At the very least. Poor Sulu gets blown Sulu right out of his chair. Explodinated. Yeah. Explodinated. Yeah. Um, at which point, they do call for McCoy. 
And Kirk walks over to her and says, send Starfleet all of my diaries. <laughs> Just in case we explode. <laughs> right on them. Do not read until I'm dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Private property of Kirk. And Mark home. this page with a big star for Admiral X so he knows where the good bits are. Yeah. Yes, and so finally we go back to poor Zulu, who's been exploded, wearing a tremendous amount of eyeshadow. It looks so good. So yeah. much eyeshadow. It is. It was an excessive amount it of was eyeshadow. Excessive. It was like it's like more it was, theater. It was like more than than Spock was wearing in this episode, it, and Spock yeah. always gets the most eyeshadow. It's true. Well, he has to go all the way up to his eyebrows for yeah. contouring reasons. He has more eyebrow than other people. It's true. So weird, like. It was distracting. Did they not know they were on TV? It's extremely distracting. Yeah, because you can see all of it. It took a while before television makeup caught up with the fact that you could point a camera right into somebody's face. Yeah, but surely when they watched the first episode, they're like, oh, we could tone that down, I guess. Well, fortunately, it looks amazing on George Takei. Good look for him. Mm -hmm. So McCoy shows up with... Cordrazine. Cordrazine. A space drug that Kirk who is not a medical doctor, <laughs> oh. describes as tricky stuff. Oh my god, Kirk was being... Fortunately, it. Bones turns around and goes, oh, I'm sorry, do you have a medical degree in the last 15 minutes? I really enjoyed that entire exchange, and that Kirk was like, okay, fair. Okay, yeah. but here's, here is, once again, my Kirk defender getting my badge out, reciting the oath. <laughs> Kirk was right, because McCoy stabs himself with it. Yeah. And then shakes. Stabs. McCoy trips. Stabs himself with it and then injects it into himself. Okay, but to be fair to McCoy, it was an accident because the ship was shaking. He didn't Mm. do it on purpose. They are going through space ripples. I would like to imagine that by the time we have figured out space hyposprays, there are safety features to keep you from accidentally injecting yourself. Agreed. So apparently two drops of these things can bring a man back to life? What was with Sulu's, like, giant manic smile when he woke up? Well, I think it was supposed to be, like, a super toned-down version of what happens to Bones. I think it's, like, an upper. Yeah, it's an up, it's an upper. It's an an up-upper. Upper. Um, But Bones, he passes out, and then he wakes up, and he's, like, the... The worst caffeine high you ever had after like twenty six hours without sleep. Three papers due. Okay, but even and screaming about assassins. I did not think that everyone I knew was a killer or assassin. No, it's that's a special special flavor of crazy. Yeah. Oh, the bones thing when he starts. Yeah, Yeah. he gets this horrible cakey makeup and starts shrieking about killers, murderers, assassins. Which I really do enjoy people saying the word assassins. Assassins! It is very satisfying. Yeah. It is. And uh, DeForest Kelly gives a bravada performance. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He's great. He was amazing. He just really let loose, got all that pent-up anger out of his system. (laughs) No, no, Day, you can scream louder. No, no, louder than that. (laughs) And shouts, you won't get me! Woody! And then <laughs> succeeds in evading everybody on the bridge. Oh, I go this way. No, I go this way. I'm gonna zig. I'm gonna zig. It's like, zag. It's like when the dog is trying to get out the front door. Yeah. So, and he manages to avoid every single person on the bridge. Yep. Two security officers. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Cold Cox, the guy running, <laughs> running the transporter room. I'm amazed anybody agrees to go on that shift. Okay. The transporter guy, he deserved to get karate chopped in the back of the neck. He knew there was an alert, so what does he do? He works with his back to the door. Like, whatever he was doing at that console could have been accomplished. Also, 
chief of security, I feel like the oh. first thing I would have done would be to lock down the transporters. Lock down the transporters. Now, here is where we expose a fundamental flaw of the Enterprise, is that the design of the transporter room is such that you have to have your back to the door as you were working on the console. So, if I was a Starfleet engineer slash architect, wouldn't you turn it around? Maybe have, like, a circle or egg shape? I feel like this probably falls in the category of that they just trust everyone on a starship to not be murderous, okay, karate but the chopping. Okay, the previous 27 episodes yes, this would is lead true. us to believe that maybe you should post a security This is maybe a there. false assumption, yeah. I actually wrote in my notes about the transporter guy, dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, McCoy, do, 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 chop! The guy immediately falls down. And so they start, instead of, like, going after him, Kirk and Spock have a discussion about what this will do to him. Yeah, so he had a hundred times the normal dose of cortisone. We have no idea what it will do to him. And here I wrote, are there no clinical trials in the future? <laughs> yeah, like, there's some, this has to have happened to somebody who's been accidentally Well, it later turns out that it, this is just, like, Kirk and Spock don't know what will happen. Because later they look at, like, the library <laughs> records and they do find all of the clinical trials. <laughs> Which is, to be quite honest... A fundamental flaw of this episode is Kirk not knowing how medical treatment works and being just like, instead of taking him back up to the ship and maybe, you know, scanning him, let's just go back in time. Also, interjection, why would you bring a vial full of that shit anywhere? Yeah. (laughs) Take the two drops. That should be enough. Maybe ten if you need to. In the real world. It's like if you're going to take a Tylenol, you don't put the entire bottle in your mouth. You might swallow it, but you're just going to swallow two. Yeah, that is it, an imperfect metaphor, there, but I stand there by There are reasons why in the real world, drugs that can kill you are parceled out into little teeny bottles. Yeah, and then they're like, gee, something transported down to the surface. Hmm. Hmm. I wonder, wonder if it was McCoy. It was McCoy. It was yeah. McCoy transporting down to the surface of this yeah. planet. So they are going to send down a landing party of every single important person on the ship. Directly leaving, to the source of the time disturbance. Leaving no one behind. <laughs> Basically, the they essentially abandon ship. Uh, so they take Uhura, Scotty, Kirk, Spock, the entire bridge crew. The entire bridge crew, leaving whom in charge? Sulu. Sulu is high. Yeah, they're still in charge. <laughs> so they they come upon what could, I can only describe as like the saddest rock donut of all time. Uh, yeah, so 10,000-year-old ruins and one conspicuously gro- glowing archway. It's mostly just slightly luminescent. So they're 10,000 centuries old. These are yeah. old as shit. Old yeah. as balls. Yes, and then Spock says that the hole seems to be pulsating with power, at which, at which point I just started rolling around <laughs> on the couch with laughter. So uh, the giant hole is the source of power. Yeah. It's also, yeah, it's the source of all of the time wibbly wobblies that are happening yes, in this area. Yes, it, it is vibrating with power. <laughs> and Spock says, well, that's impossible. <laughs> You're looking at a Spock. He Actually, I do like this line. He says, it's impossible by all the science I understand, which I think is a very Vulcan way of looking at it's it. It's a like, very sciencey way. Yeah, like, clearly there's an explanation for that. I just don't understand it at this point. Especially yeah. in light of the last few episodes we've had where impossible shit has happened. All like, the time. Hole in time and space and um, silicon life. 
So they start fanning out to look for McCoy. Uhura plus some guy. Uhura's in charge of her group. Walk past a rock. They pause and think, <laughs> well, he's definitely not here. And then they take a few steps and then, there's McCoy. Uhura's utility belt looked very cute with her outfit. Agreed. And there's not a lot to go on for you, Kim, fashion-wise for this episode. I didn't even bother writing down Edith Keeler's dresses and coat changes because they were really dull. Oh, we will have words. (laughs) So then the giant pulsating hole starts talking. (laughs) (laughs) Since the ass crack of the dawn of time, I have awaited a question. He did not say ass crack. (laughs) Close it up. I'm pretty sure that was what Harlan, Harlan Ellison's first, I first that. draft said. Maybe that's one of the lines. Hey! <laughs> did not say ass crack. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm the guardian of forever. I have my own beginning, my own ending, etc., etc. Oh, on and on. So you he's were... like the remnant of a civilization that has been gone for tens of thousands of years. Deep question, and the question that I would have asked, the one that I hope would be waiting for is, where did everyone go? Yeah, and why are you the only one left? Probably a computer. Why are you pulsating with power? I like that he, um, his description of himself when he was asked if he was a machine, he said he was both and neither. Nonsense. So the rock starts like slinging and arrowing all of the Showing them some home movies. Yeah. So first he starts out with a little bit of nagging that you're dumb and primitive. Let me see if I can simplify this for you. Let me show you my home video collection, which is uh, Earth's Greatest Hits. Yeah. Throughout history. Yeah. And then starts like spewing smoke smoke out of itself. Woo woo! Behold! A picture show! And then a wild bones appears. (laughs) Assassins! Yeah. Assassins! And I don't know why at this point we don't just stun him with the, like, oh 15 God. phasers you are all holding in your hands. So it's, like, 15 crew to one bones. And instead of doing anything, they just kind of Stand sit around. on him. They corner him. And um, Kirk, Kirk's first weird out of nowheresville question is, hey, can we take bones back in time to make sure this day never happened? Yeah, at least Spock nerve pinches him because he's the only one with a plan. Yeah. So that was, that, this was my biggest problem with this episode, <laughs> yeah. was Kirk's genius plan. Instead of like, well, let's beam him back up to the ship, get him in, give him some scans, and see how bad this is. I, I, his first thing is, <laughs> let's just go back in time! Because <laughs> the Guardian of Forever, before they catch Bones, is like, you can go to any point in your history. I think what was meant to be conveyed, but was not conveyed, I want to be perfectly clear, was not mm. conveyed, was that they're pretty sure that this will kill him. And yeah, sure. Fine. They're like, well, the only option is to keep it from happening, which is still a completely insane suggestion, Kay. even if it Kay. was going to kill Kay. him. Okay, ladies, real talk. <laughs> <laughs> you're taking a hike through the forest, it's just you, because you're camping not too far off, you're like, I'm just going to take a walk by myself, camping is stressful on relationships, I'm just going to take a walk all by myself. Okay. So you're walking along, you're walking along, you come to this big rock. And the rock has a hole in it. It's kind of like a donut. You're like, God, I wish I could kill for a donut camping. It's the worst. A million miles from the nearest to Morton. And then the donut starts talking to you. <laughs> it says, hey, hey, little girl. Climb inside of me. We could change everything. What do you do? Well, for uh, starters, the Guardian of Forever was not that <laughs> creepy or rapey. <laughs> also, if the Guardian of Forever showed up while I was hiking in the woods at, like, Aloe at Lake or something, I would have to stop and consider very carefully. How do you know 
it's the Guardian Forever. It could be lying. It's a rock. It doesn't have ethics. Yes, which is why Kirk looks like a dumbass for being like, let's fix Bones by going back in time through this giant rock we just met. Except the premise of going back in time. time. Dear Kirk, for me, the Guardian of Forever in the woods, I'd be like, wait, why is there a talking rock, first of all? Good, Second, do I believe the talking rock? No. How is the rock talking? (laughs) Is this a science fiction situation? Is this a fantasy situation? Because those have different rules. true. Dear Kirk, just because you're used to people asking to climb inside them... (laughs) No. Doesn't mean you should. No. Oh my god. So, but this is why I'm really hard on Kirk because he makes dumb I'm decisions. Also hard on Kirk. Ah! <laughs> I hate you. you You're welcome. Right into that. So they're watching. It's like private picture show, and it's strangely compelling. And I think the Rock actually says, "We'll just just like step through and lose." I want to note that Spock's response to Kirk's suggesting mm, we could just go back in time and fix this. Um, Spock's response is not, "Captain, that is a terrible idea." It is, oh, we can't. The pictures are going by too fast. We couldn't be precise enough. Spock. Spock. Oh, Spock. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, of course, because no one is looking at McCoy at this point, he immediately jumps in. (laughs) He wakes up and leaps in. Most people do not recover from a nerve pinch that fast. Uh, But maybe it's the Cortrazine. It's amazing because the way that they do this with the special effect is that he takes a running leap and then it's kind of like slow-mo, almost like Matrix-style jumpy jump, Mm -hmm. um, which looks very funny. They do a cursory attempt to try and stop him like, oh, no, I can't run after you. (laughs) Yeah, he spectacularly fails to catch him. Yes, and so they're like, oh, bummer. Let's call up the ship. No one answers. Mm-hmm. Now, my argument would be is that because everyone on the bridge is now down on this planet, there is no one to answer the phone. <laughs> yeah. Um, but apparently someone is supposed to be because Uhura's like, the ship's gone. And then the rock is like, oh, everything you knew is dead. Yeah, that could totally change your planet's history. You have no past and no future. Now, <laughs> climb inside I of would me. like to pause at this moment and demand to know why they are still there. Because they're in a time bubble. Yeah. Is it because... Is that it? Okay. Yeah, yes. because they're protected by the time, time wave. Right, I accept that. Uh, if you've read the seminal classic in Zadi, you would know that. Yes. <laughs> Get with the program, Ari. So, yeah, they're stuck in the time bubble. Uhura, in what can I can only describe as the worst line, line delivery that Nichelle Nichols oh, has yeah. ever had. Oh, Captain... I'm frightened. I choose to believe that she did it that way on purpose because it's a stupid line. Uh, it, it the was... only girl in the landing party has to say, Captain, I'm frightened. Well, I mean, they're totally alone. Things are going in weird slow-mo. They don't have any food. That, that is a pressing issue. There blankets. Is so they're going to have to go through now. Okay. No, we need to step back and acknowledge one of the greatest lines of Star Trek of all time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Captain's log, no star date. (laughs) (laughs) Because there are no dates. (laughs) Ah, there's no Enterprise, there's no nothing. And so Kirk's plan is, Spock and I are going to go back in time and stop McCoy from changing history, because obviously he dicked it up somehow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And... (laughs) 
Oh my gosh. There's this amazing part where Spock's like, oh, you know, we're going back and like, we have to go back. It's American history. At which point I felt like Shatner was going to interject. Oh, actually I'm Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, in my heart he has now. (laughs) And this, and the plan is, is that if they don't make it, then the next two are going to go. And then the next two are going to go. And then the next two are going to go. Just keep trying. Just keep Because the Guardian, who has definitely proven itself to be super reliable in the delivery of information, assures them that if they fix it, it will be as though none of you had gone. Mm. You sure? Again, this rock is not to be trusted. Its credibility is not terribly high. This is a devious rock. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So... Kirk and Spock do an amazing bunny jump. And Scotty, no way. Scotty and Uhura's faces as they are explaining this plan are like, are you kidding? And they look at each other like, is he kidding? <laughs> oh no, we can't go back there. The past They're looking, was, yeah. Yeah, the past was terrible. Yeah. The worst. <laughs> we'll just live out our lives on this planet, thank you. They won't be very long. No. So they, they bunny jump onto yeah. the Miri planet. This is definitely the Miri planet. Oh, yeah, planet. it's the oh, exact same backlog set. Yeah. It's the same backlog set. Less the Andy Griffith show of okay. Miri and Return of the Archons. Yeah, okay. Awesome. And we're in the middle of the Great Depression. My only regret about this scene yes. is that they at no time had to explain away their Starfleet uniforms yeah. as their pajamas. <laughs> People stare at them, but we don't get a single person asking, what the hell are you wearing? I'm just mostly thinking of the episode where Data goes back in time yeah. to San Francisco, and someone, yeah. someone's like, oh, the missus kicked you out in the middle of the night. Let's get you out of those pajamas. Like, yeah. by far, that is not the weirdest outfit to come out of the 1930s. No. At anywhere. But Spock immediately starts covering his ears, which is adorable. Yeah. Adorable. Yeah. And... Spock says, I will be difficult to disguise. Yeah. And Kirk says, we will explain you. <laughs> yeah. We'll find some way of explaining you. Spock can't wait to hear this. Based on what they come up with, I'm really glad they went with hat. <laughs> yeah. I love, essentially, this whole back-in-time friendship shtick. Yeah. I could watch forever. Yeah. I would love to watch Kirk and Spock get stuck in different points in history, for 10 seasons anyway. This is another thing that I wish we had actually felt the passage of time on. Like, why make it a week? Why don't make it a couple of months? It would have felt better. No, it was awesome. They shared friendship. They were roomies. <laughs> they were roomies. They were work buddies. They had one shirt between. <laughs> one shirt each. <laughs> Which they stole off of the fire escape. Kirk leaves Spock at home a lot to do all the yes. grunt work while he goes out romancing the lady. Also yeah. getting the groceries. Yep. He's oh, yeah. a good provider. Immediately after they, um, like, where they figure out where they are and Spock's hiding his ears, like, almost immediately upon arrival, they are almost hit by a car. Which is actually foreshadowing. Oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. My favorite part is they're in their uniforms and there are these two sailor friends yeah. walk by, take a look, and kind of go, that's not the weirdest thing we've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, they decide to steal some clothes off of the same uh, fire escape ladder as Mary. Yeah. The exact same one. Yeah. Nice. And Spock well, is Well, more shocked. than one fire escape ladder if you didn't have to. Yeah, that's so true. He's shocked. Theft, Captain? Theft. Um, at which point, Kirk... <laughs> Kirk immediately turns into Robin Hood. It takes him two seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Steal from the rich, we'll give back to the poor. Later. (laughs) The clothing is just asking to be stolen. Um, They're the worst thieves (laughs) in history because I'd say immediately. Immediately. immediately, And there's a cop. (laughs) He just uses cop sense. Yeah. Um, At which point. (laughs) Incompetent criminals. (laughs) 
Kirk launches into his explanation, which yeah. was not asked for. Yeah. For Spock, not for why he's stolen some clothes. <laughs> no. Doesn't feel the need to explain that. He no. just thinks that should be obvious. But he decides to explain Spock. And he's had not very long to think of this explanation. Which so is, this yeah. is what he comes up with. Oh, God. Yeah. My friend is Chinese. Obviously Chinese. <laughs> he got into a rice-picking accident. <laughs> uh, this will be easy to explain. Then there was some American plastic surgeons. Missionaries. <laughs> Missionaries. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they were in the 20th century for two minutes before getting arrested. <laughs> yeah. This is an amazing explanation. 100 points, Kirk. Uh, and then Spock, who has had enough of this, just nerve pinches the cop. Well, the yes. way, no, the way so, they get yeah. to nerve pinch the cop, though, is like, well, there's like, they know what the sexism's like. They're oh, like, yeah. I can't believe your wife sent you out <laughs> looking like that. You are so untidy. And he's like, what? And they nerve pinch him. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you've got that sexism down immediately, I guys. Mean, I was impressed by, like, the silent communication that followed the terrible couple yeah. story. Where, Kirk just sort of looks at Spock and starts being like, your wife, blah, blah, blah. And Spock's like, oh yeah, okay. And never pinches that I would guy. like to believe that every friendship has a plan to deco cops if you have to. <laughs> I have a plan, don't you? Uh, do we, I, my plan is to never break the law. <laughs> do we have to come up with a plan, though, for like every conceivable time era we could be thrown back into? Like, what if we end up with like Americans, like when we look like crazy suffragette ladies? I think we've watched mm. enough levers that we could do a good like misdirect and escape sort of thing if we absolutely had to. My you know, if it was a life and death situation where we were thrown back to the Great Depression. <laughs> I would last two seconds. Do you know how much grits those people ate? It's disgusting. So, the other part that, again, I'm going to throw my spanner to the works is why I think this episode could be better is that I really would have liked Kirk to be a, like, 20th century aficionado. Like, a big fan. Like, he's kind... There is a little bit of it, but I wanted him to kind of, like, geek out about being there. Like, he's on the mission, but he's also really excited to be back in history. Well, there's actually a... A kind of a running joke that he knows nothing about the 20th century. I actually really like that he didn't know that much about the 20th century, mostly because I'm thinking forward to every other character who has some, in coming up yeah. in Star Trek at some point, who has some sort of affinity for something about in 20th century America. Do they usually end up betraying their entire ship in order to be with someone from the 20th century? Mm, not betraying their entire ship, but like you have Tom Paris who knows exactly what to do in 1996, and you have um, except he's wrong about a lot of stuff. Yeah, but like for he, comedic because apparently the 90s are the worst time in history. For I don't know. I was just I I really appreciated that he actually knew nothing about history. Yeah. <laughs> like I was like that is fair. So they escape the co- the one cop, but immediately another cop is following them. Oh yes, mm-hmm. the policing Whistling. system in Chicago is incredible was at this, this New time. York. Was this it Chicago? Was origi- or it was New Chicago York? and Ellison's original script, but the final one was New York. That bridge looked like New York. It's New York. That was definitely New York. That was the Brooklyn Bridge. I am hundred percent sure. Pause the Kareem and Google. Oh Kareem. Fine, New York. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, cops so plenty. Oh yeah, two per block. Mm-hmm. Yeah, buddy system. So they well, this had, is a, to be fair, this is probably the neighborhood where all of the homeless and unemployed people hang out. So yeah, there would be lots. of No, cops. they live in like Hoover towns. <laughs> this is where the mission is. So mm. the one place where you can get food, but you have to listen to the ravings of a lunatic. Yep. Yeah. So they immediately 
find themselves into the basement, which I would like to pause. And there is a great bureau in that room. There was a lot of furniture in there that I wanted to steal. There was a lot of really nice furniture. Yeah. You could yeah. move into that basement oh, yeah. very comfortably. Absolutely. I don't do basement suites, but I would definitely move that furniture out of that basement <laughs> into my nice, like, second-story flop house. <laughs> That you can pay what, like a dollar fifty a week for? Uh, oh, fifteen god. cents a day. Oh my god! It is a nice bureau, but it's like green. Suddenly, and it it's has too some, real. Like, red edging, and it was so nice. There was some really nice pieces in there. Yeah. Anyways, so they're in the nicest basement of all time. Yeah. And Kirk turns to Spock and says, "You were enjoying that. Sometimes you seem quite human." And Spock's like, "There's no need to be insulting." So they immediately dress up as sexy lumberjacks. Uh-huh. So there's like the red plaid shirt, the toque, the skinny, skinny, skinny pants. Literally I'm- all they needed was a full bushy beard and you could drop them into like Vancouver today and they would fit in. You Give could Sp- drop them no, into no, no. my dreams, Cam. Give Spock a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> They'd make amazing hipsters. Leonard Nimoy is so tiny. Like he's very He's a very slender man. You could put him yeah. inside of a toaster. <laughs> So, <laughs> oh my god! So Kirk immediately starts trolling Spock in that you need to you need to make a computer, and Spock is like, "Oh, out of what?" I think this is the start of essentially we are in the prehistoric ages. Yes, knives and bearskins. Kirk essentially Tom Sawyer's him. Yeah, uh, they have this little conversations like, "How do we know Bones will like?" There's no guarantee Bones would have ended up in this city. Like he could be anywhere. Mm. And Spock does this weird little speech that talking about like currents in history and the focal point, fixed focal points in time and space. And apparently, New York is super important, which we all knew, I guess. Um, but the currents in history thing sounds a lot like the Doctor Who fixed point in time thing, which is also yeah. nonsense. But I'm gonna let it go for narrative purposes because it does work here. Um, and yeah, then he starts demanding to know how long, so how long is it going to take you to build a computer? (laughs) In the 1930s. Spock says it's impossible and then Kirk just essentially games him. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that too complex a problem for you? Sometimes I just expect too much from you, Spock. I love all the friendship (laughs) bits in here. They get along so well in this episode. I heart it so much. And then... A Joan fucking Coleman shows up. Yep. Mm-hmm. She sashays down the chair and Kim, and I know you didn't notice the fashion, but <laughs> amazing eyeliner, but she is dressed as a maid in the shortest skirt that the 1930s has ever seen. I think it was supposed to look like a nurse's uniform. Yeah. I, She's not a nurse. No, but it's sort of a... It is way thematic. too short. Well, it's knee length. Way too short. So she immediately takes a look at these two sexy lumberjacks. Who the fuck are you? Uh, yeah, basically. Yes. And she's like, oh, I will keep both of you. You guys are the sexiest yeah. hobos I've ever seen. But Kirk is, like, super upfront for yeah. her. He's like, yeah, we were hiding from the police they stole a bunch of a stuff. A weird yeah. thing happens to Kirk where he's unable to lie to her. Because she's some kind of alien from the future? Well, her soft lighting is apparently ultra-magnetic and magical because mm-hmm. he's instantly telling her the truth. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't actually give her any leading information, but... He's like, oh yeah, we were running from the cops because we stole all this stuff that we're wearing. Again, taking the Robin Hood metaphor, yeah, she's made Marion. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But Marion was a little more proactive though. Her like, I like that her. I did sort of enjoy in like a hilarious way that her reaction to these guys broke into my basement after stealing a bunch of stuff was, oh, would you like a job? Yeah, <laughs> for fifteen cents an hour. Mm. It seems so low. 
I know it's, it's like probably tragic. okay for the time, but I'm like it's so low. Well, it yeah, probably she, wasn't that great. She for offers the time. them a job, and Spock's like, "How much? At what <laughs> rate of pay?" Yeah, <laughs> and he's like, "I need it for my, for my hobby. My hobby is tubes." I need radio tubes, tubes and uh Which you are know. not a metaphor for drugs, I guess. <laughs> sure. And she's like, fine, what's your name? And he's like, Jim Kirk, and this is And again he freezes. Yes, he cannot laugh. <laughs> what did he say? I don't even remember. Spock. Spock. <laughs> and Spock looks at him like seriously. <laughs> like you could have said Bob. Tom, Dick, Harry, Frank, Leonard McCoy. <laughs> Leonard, yeah, yeah. And you have an entire galaxy of names available to you and all he can do is Spock his voice actually does quaver a little bit as he says it like oh shit what's happening to me so she takes them up to her mission which again I don't know whether it's associated with anyone else I think at the beginning she was supposed to be like a like a sister Edith or something like that I did look up on IMDB the cast list just to confirm that yes indeed this was Joan Collins and she's credited as sister Edith Keeler okay so well that might be actually a nursing thing too because yeah, uh, that's true. nurses in charge were called sisters because originally yeah. they were nuns. Yeah. yeah. So we don't know what the function of this mission is other than to feed hobos. It's like a homeless shelter. So they're they're serving up soup. Soup and on, kitchen. It's a soup kitchen. On the table, there is, you know, there are other hobos around and just giant containers of sugar. <laughs> that's all there is. No salt, no pepper, just sugar. So apparently they're serving them a sugar soup. So, yes, the deal is that the hobos have to sit there. They get their soup. They get their soup food for free, which is great. She also kind of, like, hooks them up to flop houses and jobs in return for the ravings of a lunatic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So one of the other hobos starts talking smack about her, how she's a goody two-shoes. And one of the hobos in one of my favorite moments... Is like, if she really wanted to help a fellow in need, and Kirk just says, shut up, shut up. That was amazing. That was probably my favorite Kirk thing that has ever happened. Yeah. It's a great moment. You should do that moment. more often. It's a great moment. He yeah. just does not have time for your sexy, 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 sexy. speech is very crazy. I okay. Mean, I've got the whole thing in front of me. Do you want me to... Yeah, let's yeah. do this. Let's, yeah. So yeah. she marches up to the little stage that has a piano on it at the front of the I room. I thought that she was going to start singing. I, thought so I did too. too. Again, that would have been a really funny twist is that in order to get your soup, you have to listen to her terrible <laughs> musical. That operating. actually would have yeah. been less weird than this. Yeah, because yes. this gets weird. Buckle yeah. in, sit down, head between yeah. knees, so let's you, go. So you think she's going to sit down and have like them all sing along with a hymn, but instead, you are enjoying your sugar soup. She walks up onto sugar. the stage and says that she's not just a do-gooder. She's not some crazy lunatic. She, she is. is a crazy lunatic. And then gives a little speech. One day soon, man is going to be able to harness incredible energies. What? Maybe even the atom. Energies that could ultimately hurl us to other worlds in some sort of some sort of spaceship. What? And the men that reach out into space will be able to find ways to feed the hungry millions of the world and to cure their diseases. They will be able to find a way to give each man hope and a common future. And those are the days worth living for. Dead silence. <laughs> okay, next Friday night, <laughs> before we serve people their food, we're going to have a chat. So I am trying to wrap my head around what and where this is coming from. So, 
the background to her is that, and the I think the producer and director kind of let this go, is that she is supposed to in some ways represent the anti-Vietnam War movement. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Is that she's essentially a peacenik. Yeah. Well, without getting any actual backstory on her, God, she came off some. to me like a highly educated woman from Rich. a v- very affluent background mm-hmm. who didn't have to work. But wanted to do more with her life than be a pretty wife and mother. So she had set herself, I'm going to feed the hungry. But mm-hmm. she had an education behind her and mm-hmm. dreams or something. But no real stakes but, in any Yeah, way. but no re- Yeah. I think that, like, again, knowing the metaphor that they were kind of going for. Yeah. Is that part of the 1930s, there's the threat of fascism. There's the threat of... Um, of Nazism, that the world is essentially falling apart, like the Weimar Republic has fallen, and that America is in this struggle between isolationism and engaging with the, on the world stage. Mm-hmm. And that she is essentially represents that isolationism because her her entire speech is is that we need to we can't fund the war. We can't get ourselves involved in that kind of thing is that we need to be striving for peace. And Spock says, she's not wrong. She's just in the wrong time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if we think about that, like in the 1960s, like the people, the anti-war movement, um, that yes, to strive for betterness of humanity, to strive for peace is good, but not now. Yeah. I, but talking about harnessing the atom to a bunch of hobos who just would like to have some soup, please, seems a bit out of place. And I think, Kim, what you're picking up on the fact is this is Joe fucking Collins. Yes. Um, Who is Jackie Collins' sister. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't know that? No. I honestly did not. Make the connection. I did not have much of a vested interest in either of them. (laughs) Um... But yeah, Joan Collins, British bajillionaire, star of The Stud, The Bitch, and Dynasty. Yeah. <laughs> and that she does, no matter what she does, she cannot do a uh, chav no. at all. So she has a slightly clipped British accent that does give the impression of um, of being much above them. If mm-hmm. you're, I, I can't help but compare this to a book that I read called St. Maisie. Um, by Jamie Attenberg, I think, which is about, based on a real person who during the 1930s, during the Great Depression, she had a movie theater mm-hmm. and she used to let the let the bums come in and like sit and watch the movies and she would spend her nights essentially like hauling them to soup kitchens or trying to get them fed or trying, like essentially doing this job. Mm-hmm. Um, but you really understood her, whereas I don't understand her motivation for getting involved at all. No. No. Other than she just wants to have a captive audience. And by captive, I mean captive. Yeah. They are trapped. They are prisoners like, of soup. They work for her. They yes. They get their food from her. She finds them shelter. Like, yeah. she's living in the same building as Kirk and Spock. Yeah, she finds them an apartment. She finds a boyfriend, and she hangs on to it. So... She, yeah, she gets them a new flop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I feel like somebody went into an encyclopedia and looked up 1930s slang. Yeah, yeah very much does. He's amazed. He just smolders at her so hard and she yeah. just kind of blinks. Yeah. And he w- walks back to Spock very proudly and says, we have a flop. <laughs> 
And in this flop where they're getting, uh, apparently 15 cents a day goes a lot fucking farther than I thought it did. Because Spock is building a TV. Basically. He is building a TV. So, what, okay, so let's do the math on this. If they're working, so they're getting 30 cents a day. 30 cents a day between them. Yeah. Which is, if they're working, I'm assuming they're working six days a week because the only day you take off is for God. Yeah. (laughs) So they're making $1.80 a week. How much did their flop cost? Uh, Wasn't it 150 a week? Oh a my week. gosh, that's exorbitant. So actually, they have 30 cents a week to spend on building their TV. And food is probably more than that because in the 19th, until like the late 1940s, food was way more expensive than housing. Well, he bought really nice, fancy food, Kirk. Yeah. He bought them vegetables and a hard roll and yep. some cheese and yeah. bologna. And bologna. An entire, like, I don't even know what to call that, tube of bologna. That, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about the $1.50 for, because I feel like they had more money or they had like a $1.50 left over or something. But anyway, my favorite part, is this where we are? Oh, is, is Kirk walks in after a hard day work and going grocery shopping and Spock's like, I need some platinum. He's Just the, a small brick will do. <laughs> he's the worst wife ever. <laughs> Although he does set his eyes high, which is what you really should do. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Edith shows up, just wanders in. What the hell are you doing, Spock? Uh, apparently no one can lie to her because he's like, oh, I'm building a mnemonic memory circuit. And she's like, with stone knives and bear skins. <laughs> because they have this little argument where Spock's like, you expect me to work like this. What am I supposed to do? Yeah. Well, okay, though, the reason that she did run in, though, was I suppose nice and kind of her. Oh, yeah. I can get you good paying work, 22 cents an hour. Okay. For five hours if you leave right now. 22 cents this an hour. This seems like it was at the end of the day. Yeah. For five hours. Okay, so that's a dollar ten to add to their 30 cents. They had a dollar forty to go buy platinum. I do not think that would have been sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> I, wait, wait, pause. I'm going to look up the price of platinum. Now it's time for Platinum Facts. It's my so, favorite part of the show. So, in the 1930s, they were producing about 7 milligrams of platinum per year. <laughs> really? Yeah, That's like a lot. <laughs> it isn't. Spock wanted, what, pounds? <laughs> so, most platinum comes out of South Africa. And according to my research... <laughs> aka googling for 40 AKA seconds aka googling is that in the 1930s during the great depression per tro- for a troy ounce which is exactly 31.1034768 grams of platinum would have cost you $250 so Spock is not getting his platinum <laughs> So, Spock is going to be waiting for a lot of Christmases for that to come under his tree. Um, But that's okay, because while they are doing, I assume, the good paying work that she got them... It's sweeping floors in a slightly sketchy looking room where two guys are fixing clocks. They are fixing clocks with some precision tools, which Spock spots from across the room and says, Hey, Captain, we should definitely steal those. Are they supposed to be made out of platinum? No, they're just tools. They're precision tools. He didn't have any. This was where the These are like, weird cuts start happening. Yes. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah. Because, like, you see them looking at the tools, then you cut to Spock picking a lock, then you cut to Edith Keeler walking in going, you While guys stole are, those tools! Yeah, which is supposed to be time later because they're, like, shoveling coal into a boiler or something. Yeah, I thought that they had thrown the tools inside of the nope. fire to melt them down nope. because they were made out of platinum. No, because but, Spock says... But, as we learned in our platinum facts, <laughs> that most platinum is used in transportation. Yes. Um, because, yeah, 
all of these weird jump cuts happen and Edith storms in on them where they are apparently working in a boiler room or something and says, you stole those tools. And Spock says, it's cool. I would have brought them back tomorrow. And she's all set to kick them out. And Kirk's explanation is, well, when Spock says he'll return something, he definitely will. And she's like, oh, well, perfectly sensible. Thief away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and she's like, okay, fine. I won't fire you on the condition that you walk me home. <laughs> That's a totally normal... <laughs> sure. Again, this was the point where I came up with my amazing metaphor of the sexiest little ho- hobos. <laughs> hobos. The sexiest yeah. hobos. Edith. I wrote it, like, at least four separate times in my notes for this episode. Edith, he is a hobo. <laughs> yeah, but he's a really sexy hobo. Yes, with very clean hair. I will admit. He has clean hair, and he really doesn't bother buttoning up the top of his shirt. <laughs> no. I wrote down here, I'm just actually looking at my notes. I wrote, Kirk smolders her into not turning the man. Essentially. Yes. What's yes. work? But this is the, the some really nice observations by Edith about Kirk and Spock because she says there's something funny about you two because she wants her she wants him to walk her home so that she can like interrogate him basically. Like what the hell is up with you two, you weirdos? You're in love. And she says, You two don't belong here. There's something strange about you you're and out Spock of place. says you're out of place. And Spock says, Where would you estimate we belong, Miss Keeler? And she says, You at his side. <laughs> oh, Which made him sound like a dog. It did. <laughs> like the, the littlest hobo. Fuck your word! I think that she's casting it in a, like a military superior officer, sure, fine, whatever. officer kind of thing. Or because, because or, she says, yeah, whatever, a dog. But because she also, um, a couple of minutes later, he says, "I will see you later," and, or something like that. And she says, "Captain." And Spock stops and looks at her, and she's like, even when he doesn't say it, he does. Again, Edith is writing her own slash fan. She yes. really is, which I like. Yeah. So they do this to the dulcet tones of Goodnight Sweetheart, which actually was not published until 1931. Mm. Great song, though. Mm-hmm. Great song. Um, and she's trying to, like, suss out exactly what their relationship is before she starts making out with yes. Kirk. She's also yeah. trying to figure out if he is indeed from space. Well, oh, I can't. Lunatic! So she's like, did you, are you guys, like, were you in the military together? Which, are you roommates? (laughs) The thing is that he answers all of her questions without lying, but without actually giving anything away. He's like, yeah, we We serve serve together. together. Which is true. If I was on her, I was like, serve, like, with your penis? Yeah, and they have this sort of... What, out of context, is a very quite clever bantery conversation where she's like, oh, you must have served together in military, and and he says, oh, well, I'm from space, or something like that, where neither of them actually answers a question, but they sort of spin these weird little stories around each other. And she sort of comes out and she says, you two are in trouble. I can tell that you're in trouble. Let me help. Mm. And I think that what he says next was meant to be a theme of the episode. It didn't quite come through. No. Um, yeah. And he says, let me help. Because she says that several times throughout the episode. A hundred years or so from now, I believe a famous novelist will write a classic using that theme. He'll recommend those three words even over I love you. Which is kind of like socialism. Yay! Wait, uh, is there a famous novel? I I think it's an in-canon book because the person, because she's like, oh really? And and, and who will write it? And what will it be about? And he points up into the sky. (laughs) And he says, and I think he means this to be joking, but I'm sure it's factually no, true. It's, I'm it's, sure it's factually it's from true. from another planet. But he, he, he expects that she will take it as a joke, which she kind of does, apparently. No, because he she's says, You see that little star in Orion's belt? A planet orbiting that star. 
And it's like a best-selling novel. And I tried to find out if this is a book that gets mentioned again in canon because I vaguely remember something about a star in Orion's belt and a novel, but I can't remember any details. I'm sorry, guys. I failed you. Your Trek knowledge is inferior. Yeah. So, at this point, I worried a little bit for Edith because, grant you, he is the hottest hobo in Hoverbell. Of all of the hobos that she sees. Hottest hobo in Hoverbell. Incorrect. Really? Compared to all the other hobos that we've seen in this episode? Really? Kim, who is your top hobo? Spock. Carrying on. Anyhow. Spock gets the computer working. Yeah, he, but the, and For a second. He sees that. Okay. okay, he's accessing these files? From the tricorder. From the, yes. oh, from the tricorder. From the tricorder. I was while they were completely on. unclear yeah. where no, he was. making up the television signals before television has been invented. <laughs> because while they were on the planet, he was recording the, what the, what the Guardian was showing. And he okay. was like, it's going too fast. And that's how they figure out where to jump through is that he was recording with the tricorder and he was right. slowing it down so they could figure out exactly where to jump through. But they have no way of accessing those records because this was 1967 and no one had worked out the idea of having an output on the same device that took your input. So he had to rig up a new screen for that, which is what he's building the computer for. And he sees a headline that says, social worker killed. And it's Edith Keeler. Yes. And then everything explodes in the most colorful way I've ever seen. It's a rainbow of explosions. Yeah, because um, that's his first try. And then Kirk comes in. And they pull up another article with more detail. He says, Captain, I have some bad news. No, no. Um, so we get the two conflicting timelines explained at this point. So we get one, the alter timeline in which they now reside because Bones came back or did or is about to change something. Where Edith Keeler ends up conferring with um, FDR, FDR mm-hmm. about poverty and peace. becomes about poverty and peace and and basically sparks a pacifism movement that changes the course of history. First positively, because she gets super famous and 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 the United States becomes ultra peaceful, but ends up delaying the United States' entry into World War II to the degree that how do they describe Hitler it? Wins. Hitler, Hitler wins. wins. Yeah. Basically it, it allows Germany to develop our nuclear program and take over the world. How do they describe it? They describe it as Hitler, Hitler wins. wins. Yeah. <laughs> And so Spock says, Edith Keeler must yes. die. Yes. Which wah, 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 is that's... the name of my next band. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that yeah. is such a good name. That yeah. is a great oh, name. Edith Keeler must die. That is a punk yeah. rock name, Tam. Yeah. That's awesome. So metal. So yeah, in the original timeline, the one that led to them existing, um, she dies in a traffic accident. Yes. Um, I really yeah. love that she's the key to defeating Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> Joan Collins is the key to defeating Hitler. I want that on a t-shirt. So Kirk does not like this version of events at all. And of course at this point the computer like goes and burns out. So here we go to a horse and buggy and I was so confused as to what was going on and then I realized oh it's the milkman. (laughs) (laughs) Like who is this dickhead driving around his buggy in the morning? Yeah. Milkman. Milkman. And then it's Leonard McCoy, milk snatcher. No, no, no. The the hobo hobo. steals the milk. I wrote down it's jerk hobo because the building to which that milk was being delivered did not look particularly ritzy. And that poor person now is down a bottle of milk. They They should have probably barely afford to pick up their milk. What about the poor French Canadian lumberjacks whose clothes Kirk and Spock are wearing? (laughs) Agreed. It's the Depression, man. So McCoy bunny jumps out of the future, screaming, Assassin! Mm-hmm. Uh, the hobo was already having a really bad day and it's just gotten worse. Oh, the hobo was having the worst day. 
So literally of his life, as it turns out. <laughs> and McCoy kind of creeps up upon him. What planet is this? The hobo drops the milk. Yes. And runs away. And Bones scre- runs after him, screaming the least reassuring reassurance I've ever heard. <laughs> Don't run! I won't kill you! That's exactly what I wrote. That is not reassuring. <laughs> oh. oh, that was the best. That was probably my favorite yeah. part of the whole episode. I won't kill you! <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Edith and Kirk I, are either on the same romantic walk or a new romantic walk. Or the longest the romantic, longest walk, romantic ever. walk. Um she is today's oh. theorizing about the moon landing, and he laughs at her, like straight up laughs at her face because Haha, she's predicting the future. This is really freaking me she's out. She's a witch, 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 <laughs> she's a witch. It's like we're gonna reach for the moon. See, that also would have been a better story. All so true. She's like, how do you know? She's like, I can feel it. They'll take all the money they spend on death and spend it on life. Oh, sweetheart. Mm. I would say that you're in for a big disappointment, but... Yes. So, McCoy... The poor, poor hobo guy's like, Oh, like, I've been down this dark well before. Like, the Everyone drinks you. the wrong wood alcohol. Yeah, once. you just gotta, like, sleep it off. He's like, where are we? The constellations seem the same as Earth. And he is blotchy at this point. Oh, yes, very blotchy. Blotchy and... Very sweaty. And yeah. acting his butt off. He is, he's, then grips this guy by the balls and is like, feels <laughs> him it off! Yeah. He feels the guy up! Then he yep. does a cement pole dance. Yeah, and then he starts um, freaking out because he's like, oh god, 20th century hospitals, they were the worst! Which is actually something he continues doing in later Star Trek. They canon. had needles! Needles just like the one he stabbed himself Stitch with. Stitch people up with, like, garments. They sew people like garments. <laughs> yeah. Good line. And then he faints. Yeah, and the bum's just like, ooh, I'll just take my hat and, and rob you. your phaser. <laughs> Which, I'm sorry, yeah. but a crazy guy passes out in front of you on the street, the only reasonable thing to do is rob him. Hmm. Well... Honestly, I wouldn't want to touch what has been touching him because what if he had like a contagious disease? His face is a very blotchy. Yeah. And um, so this poor bum. Yeah. Again, this episode is supposed to say that we and and other episodes of Star Trek have shown that we don't know the impact that any one individual has on history. Yeah. Except for this fucking hobo, because no one cares about him. <laughs> nope. Yeah, and it turns out that his contributions to history are about to come to a rude and sudden well, stop. He is the first human being to die of a phaser. Yeah. yeah. Because he picks up the phaser, goes, looks down at it. Okay, gun safety lesson, kids. Even if it's a phaser, you do not point the business end at your face. Mm. <laughs> Don't point the business end of anything at your face unless it is a consensual act. Yeah. <laughs> so, McCoy looks terrible. <laughs> yeah. I can't say this enough. And Kirk is having his little, like, existential crisis is that I need to know if she lives or dies. I need to know what to do. Spock's like, the first time building this took me 30 hours. Well, you were like romantic walking with Edith Keeler. It's true. Kirk does not help a brother out. Kirk and Edith, like, I mean, milkmen deliver milk in the morning. So those two were literally wandering around to New York all night. Unless that was just a really poorly communicated time jump. I think it probably was. Or they just walked around New York hand in hand. Until the sun came up. Oh, it's so beautiful. Or sure. they found a park bench to bang. Oh, I think that's Shut up, their love is pure! <laughs> uh, yeah. 
He's very upset. He needs to know the truth because he loves her. Even though she died centuries before he was born. And it can never be. It can never be. Like, even even if she lives. That's true. What's his long-term plan? Either A, stay in the past and succumb to, like, smallpox or World War II, or take her forward in time so she gets such freaking culture shock that she doesn't know how to live. I have a note. If you did take her forward in time, it would have had the same effect as if... She but died. she wasn't killed. No, but I think that was part of like the, 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 the point was to her. remove her from influencing the history. And if she simply disappeared, although I don't know if the guardian would let people come forward in time who wasn't supposed to. The be guardian there. seems pretty loosey goosey of what's coming. Well, the in way or that out of the it. way that it seems to be is that people from the future can go back to the past to like fuck around, not to do anything useful. Why would you even build such a machine? I have absolutely no idea, but I suspect it destroyed their civilization. Yeah, I think they guardianed themselves right out of forever. Which, I'm sorry, if you're going to muck about with time to that degree, you deserve to die as a civilization. Well, there's another episode of Classic Trek where an entire planet removes themselves from their present because they're going to be destroyed by a supernova. Don't they become balls? Well, they all... No, they all... This is the one where they all escape into their... Why does everything become balls? (laughs) You have to talk to Roddenberry about that. They build a time travel machine and they escape into their planet's history, to different periods of history, which is dumb. It's like, um, was it Terra Nova, which drove me crazy because let's go back to the, like, what was it? The the, dinosaurs. The dinosaur era. Yeah, that'll help. You'll just rewrite history. Isn't there an episode of Next Gen where you get all these different time portals to different places That too. That's Iconians, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Turn into balls? No, no, they do not turn but into you, balls. Do you have the opportunity to go back to like yeah. a university in Toronto? Yes. <laughs> Hard pass. Yeah. All right. So Kirk is full of the angst. McCoy somehow stumbles into, into the mission. Into the mission. Uh, Edith takes one Following the smell of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no booze in it. And she's like, oh, you need a nap. Yeah. No, yes. Put you in the back. Um, and then Spock starts. Sur- For some reason, this visual of Spock serving coffee was really pleasing to me. <laughs> he looks really good, like, with his sleeves rolled up, working yeah, industriously. About, it's like one of those, like, the gift sets of, like, very simple things being poured, which is yeah, like, yeah, yeah. pleasing, and you get that tingly sensation on the top of your head. Yeah. You might want to see a doctor about that. <laughs> it's not lice, I promise. So, <laughs> uh, so Edith is supposed to die. And yeah. Kirk says... Uh, I'm in love with her. Kate, no, you're not. Yeah, no, you're not. You've this, known her like four This days. is where we get the explanation that Edith Keeler's yeah. death stops Hitler. Yes. <laughs> yes. Or allows America to stop Hitler. Which I want to contest that statement because it's US-centric nonsense, but I'm happy to move on beyond it anyway. Yes, let's just quickly go into that to yeah. the um, Spock's crush on Edith Keeler. Yeah. And um, Spock says, yeah, that's fine. She must die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um... Bones wakes up on his cot in the back room of the mission, and Edith is sitting there, creepily watching him sleep. I would like to interject with my sad Kirk moment of the episode, is that he can only fall in love when the Enterprise is gone. Oh. Oh, that's really sad. Literally never existed. Yeah. That is the only way that he can fall in love. Oh my god. He doesn't have the responsibility of being captain anymore. Exactly. That's depressing. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, so McCoy is a sassy mofo in yes. this episode. He also oh, thinks yeah. that he's hallucinating. He does. Probably or gets the aliens have him. Yeah, he thinks that this whole thing is like a, a fake, like a museum piece. It's just there to trick him. Yeah. Um, but he's very pleasant about it this time when he wakes up. He's like, where am I? I was gonna ask where am I, but I don't think I'll ask because the answer will just mean that I've lost my mind. 
See, like, this is what I'm talking about, the whole thing with Kirk being like, the only solution is to go back in time. Like, no, he just needed a nap and a couple of hours to recover, and <laughs> he was fine. a cup fine. of coffee, yeah. Yeah, a cup yeah. of coffee, a nap, and he's fine. Kirk yeah. overreacted. The then back it in time says, uh, it's like 1930-something. Nineteen thirty. Yeah, and he's been talking about st- like starships, blah blah blah, talking about the future in this very concrete way. And she says, "I have a friend who talks like you. Would you like to meet him?" And Bond says, "I'm a surgeon, not a psychiatrist." <laughs> Introduces himself, um, and as like um, I think he he gives name and rank. He gives name and rank, and she says, "Please don't take this the wrong way, but that does not look like a navy uniform." <laughs> and he's like, "That's okay." That's okay, dear. I don't believe in you either. <laughs> so Kirk saves Edith from the stairs. Yes. And Spock gives a little... Spock is, like, not He's okay watching with, with that. his arms crossed. He looks like the jealous wife or the yeah. jealous, like, father watching yeah. his daughter and his son go off. It's like, you need to let her die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Millions will die if you follow your heart. Stop being chivalrous. Yeah. <laughs> Should you have saved her just then? Um, and he's basically like, he's trying, he, this is Spock being gentle. It's like, you really need to reconcile yourself to the fact that she yeah. has to die or the world never happens. Edith Keeler must, must die. die. God, such a good band name. Mm-hmm. Oh, I kind of want to stitch that onto the back of a jean jacket now. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I will definitely wear it. Mm-hmm. I would buy two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, Edith brings Bones the paper. He's convinced himself it's a, a hallucination, but he seems to have, like, come out of the Cordrazine rage. Yes. Which is good. Um, and she's going to a Clark Gable movie, she tells him, with her young man. <laughs> with her young hobo. Her young that was adorable. Hobo. My yeah. young man is taking me to a Clark yeah. Gable film. In the 1930s? Anyhow. Yeah. <laughs> but, which is, all of this is so sweet and so innocent, and so they're stepping out together, and she's like, oh, I met I have this nice guy who, this nice, crazy drunk in my <laughs> side room. His name is McCoy. And Kirk grabs her and says, McCoy! And then he looks across the street and runs and says, stay there, don't move. And yells for Spock. Yells for Spock. And they go to McCoy and she does not follow orders and starts to cross the street. They're having their happy reunion, hugging and backslapping. Oh. And then there's a screech of tires and a scream. Oh no, it's worse. The yeah. car is coming towards her. McCoy sees it and starts Just, to yeah, run to help her. And Kirk stops him. Yeah. That was heartbreaking. And yeah. McCoy says, you killed her. Do you Don't know, you know what, what you, you did? did? Yeah. And, and Spock says, believe me, doctor, he knows. <gasps> that was heartbreaking. So they immediately strip down in the middle of the street and get back into their uniforms and then I think they just blip out of existence as of that exact moment just reappear as they left yeah they jump through they're just jumping back like they're they're they yeah. they probably they are Narnias yeah, yeah they're yeah. jumping back through. they're Narniaed and the rock was like well done many such journeys are possible join me in my pulsating hole of power would you like to play a game yes <laughs> don't say pulsating hole of power and is like okay let's beam up because apparently the ship is here uh, and yeah Kirk's, and Scotty uh, says you've been gone like three seconds he, he Narnia's them yeah. mm-hmm. and then Kirk says in the most awful hollow voice yeah let's get the hell out of here yeah end of episode yeah he was very upset. He was very and upset. That was very upsetting. That that part was heartbreaking. Yeah. I think that the power of it is definitely in these last couple of seconds and the super 
downer note that they allow the episode to end on. Yeah. I there's always, there's no quip out. I like the episodes that end on the down note. <laughs> of course you do. We have established that you like super depressing things, but yeah. it, it is right that it lets the episode's emotions end the way that they should. The way that human beings there, would. Yeah. There is no way for this to be a happy story. No, absolutely not. So you just let it be the story that it is, that it's powerful enough to stand on its own. I mean, that's, I think, the central part of this, that is a strong story, is that there's really only one way this can end. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, in a mm-hmm. way. It's like, yeah, okay, well, Kirk's gonna fall in love with her because she's, like, goodness personified in everything that he believes in. But in order for everything he believes in to exist... He cannot have her. He cannot have anyone. Again, no. I don't understand what his long-term plan was for this relationship. Yeah. Other than the park bench, apparently, Kim. Yeah. I don't know. I think maybe he thought he'd just have to say a, a fond farewell and keep the memory of her forever when they found Bones and go back. I think that, in a way, he was not... He was in love with her, but he was also in love with the strange kind of life that he had there. His, the demands on him are very simple. I also think, He works a little, yeah. he gets fed, he gets to have fun with his roommate, and then he has his best girl. I think the, the fact that he just fell in love without planning it was quite novel for him. Like, having pleasant feelings that are uncomplicated by responsibilities or general horrors are probably quite unusual for him. Yeah, well, And the idea that he can just drop into a situation, fall in love, and it feels good is bizarre for him. It is because he doesn't have the weight of the Enterprise down on him Mm -hmm. the entire time. He's absolutely, within the confines of this universe, free. He's a real boy. Until he realizes that he has all of time and the future of humanity weighing on him, yeah. and then people die. And, and, if he, so and if he screws up, the Nazis will win. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is, no which pressure. is a lot to kind of have yeah. on your shoulders. Yeah. Yeah, it's... It's a... The ending is the best part, where he has to put aside his selfish need, or not really selfish, but put aside his needs, his desires for the betterment of society. But it's, it's like every single episode for him is that for a moment he gets to forget that he is a captain, that he gets to play act at being a real boy, mm-hmm. that he gets to have a little jaw where no one depends, nothing, no life or death decisions are made by him. He sweeps floors, he does little jobs, he goes and gets groceries. How novel. <laughs> he gets to live the life of a real person. Because in a very real sense, those responsibilities don't exist right now. No. And at the very end of the episode, it's not, it is, it, he is the focal point of all responsibility. That yes, many lives do depend on him all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's almost the death of his innocence again. Yeah. Um, the death of like uh, his childhood that he has to go back to his adult responsibilities. I fucking hated the way the land in which the wardrobe ended, and I'm still angry about it years later. <laughs> that is fair. <laughs> it is. It's it's almost like a fantasy fantasy wonderland during the Great Depression. But it is for him. It's kind of like a playland. He doesn't he doesn't have people constantly looking out for him. He can just be Jim. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, so, performance of the episode, Kim. DeForest Kelly. Oh. Agreed. DeForest Kelly. Green? I'm making you pick right now. <laughs> I'm kind of torn. DeForest Kelly is fine, but all he has to do is shouty acting. <laughs> yeah, I like to shouty acting. Assassins! Murderers! I am 
going to give it to Shatner. Of course. <laughs> but only because of his delivery of the very last line of the show. That was upsetting. I thought it was a very good read on it. And Shatner has said that this is his favorite episode of Star Trek. He's also said that other episodes are yes. his favorite episodes. But this is one of his favorite episodes of Star Trek. And I understand why. Like, there's a lot for him to work with. It mm-hmm. tells a very simple, I guess, on the surface story. And he gets a lot to do with it. Yeah. No, that's a good episode. Uh, yeah, life lesson... Kim. Edith Keeler must die. <laughs> that is an amazing band name. Oh, so good. Ari? Uh, time travel is not the answer to your problems. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Um, Just generally speaking. So true. Mine is that some hobos are apparently expendable. <laughs> More expendable than others. Aww. Yes. Uh, Kim, your count. Uh, two deaths. Edith and the phaser bum. Poor <laughs> <laughs> phaser bum. Uh, Ari, your count. Uh, let's see. <laughs> We have three ladies, uh, uh, Yeoman, Tamara, and Uhura, and Edith. Yeah. That is all of the ladies in this episode. The only other people in this episode are a few cops and bums who are all men. There was the two ladies who saw Kirk and Spock and were like, They're clearly hobos from the future. (laughs) You're in the hobo neighborhood. They were wearing some big hats. And four people of color. All right. Well... That, I don't know, guys. Like, this is supposed to be the best episode of Star Trek. Is it all downhill from here? No. No. I don't think it is the best episode of Star Trek. No, I, I think, it's not the best, but I think it's good. For certain qualities, it is the best episode of Star Trek, but I don't think it's, like, the best episode of Star Trek. It is, it is a good story. If you, you know, if it weren't a Star Trek episode, I would call it a better story. But I like the time travel episodes, almost all of them. So... That's true. It is not the best because we still have a floating space Lincoln to look forward to. Oh, God. God. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Platinum fact. Spock wanted five or six pounds to build his computer. In today's cost, that would have taken them 1,167 years to afford. Welcome to the neutral zone after dark, where Ari and I, with apologies to Kim, keep talking about the city on the edge of forever because we figured that we actually had more to say. Yeah. We are now camped out on the couch, drinking tea, and we are still talking about this episode. In the background, you're going to hear our dog licking her toes. He goes to that. There you go. And she also has some things to add to this episode, I feel like. As much as she ever does. She always seems to want to interject. That's true. So we were talking about the theme of this episode. And it doesn't really have a theme. It's more like it's trying to deliver, like, vague... It's trying to deliver feelings, but not explicit messages. Like, yes, there's a sort of a theme about the the anti-Vietnam peace movement. There's, There's some stuff in there about sacrifice. There's... Uh, one of my favorite things about Star Trek time travel episodes is that, in my opinion, Star Trek, of all of the franchises, does time travel the best. At least, my preferred way. Really? 1969 doesn't do it for you from Stargate? That's almost a perfect yes, episode. Yes, but 1969 is clearly riffing off of Star Trek when it makes that yeah, episode. In so many different ways. That episode, 
is a Star Trek episode that they were really bitter they weren't around to make at the time that actual Star Trek was happening. My second interjection is, is this a Star Trek story? I think it really could have been anybody's story. Mm-hmm. I mean, to a point, it kind of feels like you could take out specifically Kirk and Spock and it would have been, for the most part, just as enjoyable. Like, it could have been two other spacefaring future people who got thrown back to the depression and there was a girl who was lovely and she had to die or the world would cease to exist and also Nazis. But because Spock and Kirk are there because, you know, a future that we are familiar with and fond of to a point is at stake. It's kind of like Star Trek fan fiction. (laughs) Um, But I love the way Star Trek does time travel because I think they do it more elegantly than most other franchises. I mean, there are certainly, like, out-of-franchise exceptions to this. There are plenty of movies that do amazing jobs of this. But Mm. I love circular time travel stories. I love (laughs) when the story comes back around to itself, and the thing that you thought you were going to prevent is the thing that you end up causing that keeps the first thing from happening or makes the first thing happen. Star Trek does amazing circular time travel stories. Mm. And they are remarkably consistent about it. And in this case, we get that thing that I love that Star Trek does so well and does better and better with every iteration throughout all of the franchises. Um, but we also get this this really sad, really quite small story that has huge stakes. Mm-hmm. It, it really is a small, tiny story. Yeah. As simple as a story as old as time. Yeah. Much like little Sobo, boy meets girl, mm-hmm. girl has soup kitchen, and <laughs> is a raving lunatic. <laughs> they fall in love. Boy must let girl die. Yeah. I mean, it's, like I said, it's very much like fan fiction. It's like an AU. It's, it's, it's a thing that can never happen, and as it turns out, did never happen. That's true. It's only the emotions that remain, because essentially what happened to them... Never happened. Yeah, because he kept it from happening. How's that for a mindfuck? But, like, what you're left with is this sort of vague sense of, like, sadness and loss, but also, well, very vague, because we don't really, it's hard to see Edith Keeler as a real person because we get no backstory on her, but this sort of sense of having lost something that had great potential, and but also hope, because, <laughs> frankly, she died so that we could have a better world. That's true. But not in an intentional way, in a the universe is cold and uncaring way, but like the universe turns the way that it is meant to turn, and because she didn't survive and bring about a fundamentally unsuccessful peace movement, I think <laughs> it should be noted, um, we instead got starships and an Earth where there is no poverty, there is we, no war. We got her future. We got the future that but she wanted. her. Yeah. She died so that the future that she believed in and wanted to happen came to pass. Much like Jesus. <laughs> yes, just like that. It is strange, though. The more, the more I think about Edith, the more I do kind of like her. She does represent the better future for all of us, but... Yeah. She's not meant for this world or exactly. not meant for this time. She is a fundamentally tragic figure. Yeah. That she really does belong in Kirk's time. Yeah. She's very, like... So, in a way, they're both out of their own times. Yeah. Oh, nice parallel. It's kind of a, a little bit like... You can see echoes of Edith Keeler in... I cannot remember her name right now, but the cetacean biologist in Voyage Home. 
Oh, Who is yeah. the mom from Seventh Heaven, of course. The but, mom from Seventh Heaven, but, yes. And in that story, Kirk goes back in time to, you know, again, fix a terrible mistake. In this case, you know, basically destroying most of the large animals on Earth, apparently. Yes. Good job, humanity. And meets this woman who just does not, frankly, want to live in the time that she lives in because it sucks. Um, and she ends up going back to the future with them. And she seems much happier there. I think it's not so much that she doesn't like the future that she's in, is that she is so concerned with the whales that it doesn't matter time or place or space where she yeah. is, so long as she is with her whales. Yeah. But she, I, I, appreciate the I think, ultimately is much more content in, you know, the future than she was in her own time. Like, she yeah. chooses to go with them. Yeah. And I think that's sort of like, it's in a way, in a very vague roundabout sort of way, it's like giving Edith what she ultimately really would have wanted, except I don't think she would have wanted to travel to the future because she wanted to have a hand in bringing it about. I don't think she would have. I think she would have been happy to see poverty reduced. I Mm -hmm. think she would have been happy to see hunger eradicated. I think she would have really enjoyed the future. And the the tragedy of it is, is that, yeah, she's, she, and she's a woman out of time. Kirk is a man out of time. Mm -hmm. Um, both of them in many ways more suited for each other's time period than yeah. their own. I think it would have made it a great deal less tragic if he had just been able to tell her that it happened. We made it. Which is always, because every single, everyone that I can think of off the top of my head, every Star Trek episode, movie, whatever, where mm-hmm. our good crew goes back in time to meet, they meet the idealists, they meet yeah, the crazy the ones, the dreamers. The dreamers always talk about, if we could only do this, if we could only get here. And only very rarely do they get to tell them, we got there, we did this, we made it. They usually give them a little, a like, hint. wink. Yeah, and it's, and it's, the thing is that it's a wink that is being made towards the fourth wall. Yeah. And that's, again, it's very Star Trek, it's very Roddenberry, it's turning to look at the camera and going, it's going to be okay. But in this, it it isn't okay for her. Well, no, it isn't, especially since, you know, like, ultimately her dying brings about the good future, but only very eventually. And first, we have Nazis. <laughs> so. that Yes, that's true. And, I, and in a way, her life affected no one. Her death affects everyone. Well, it's not even that. It's just the absence of her influence. Yes. It's her not existing. It's not even that her death spurs something on. It's that her disappearing from history. Ouch. Except that the impression you get is that that was what was always meant to happen. She was not meant to influence at that point in time. So She doesn't get to influence any point of time. She's no. dead. Yeah. But like she was never meant to is the impression that we're left with. And that's kind of like, mostly what I think the parts that I really like about this story itself is mm-hmm. that you're not left with a, a message or, or like a really compelling story even. Although I do quite like the central story. Like I said, that it's a, it's a, the central story is very simple. It's a classic sci-fi mm. sort of thing. What you're left with is feelings, impressions. I think the hardest part is that it's not so much the tragedy of Kirk. It's the tragedy of her life. Yeah. Her life where she is constantly trying to affect goodness and change in people and present them with an optimism. Like at the end of her bizarro speech, it's eventually about hope. Is that if we don't succumb to despair, if we give up 
on spending all of this money and our effort on war mm-hmm. is that we can achieve greatness and that essentially her tiny voice has to be silenced mm-hmm. because it's not the right time because it's not the right time like they admire her but well there isn't a positive spin on that though is that edith is always saying like you just have to help each other you have to believe in each other men let will me go help. Down. let me help and that sort of infused throughout her entire very brief story is the idea that we have to help each other we have to support each other that we have to move forward together and it also leads to this idea that really anybody can influence history if they pick the right time if they are in Mm -hmm. the right moment like you have to be the right person but you also have to have the right moment Mm -hmm. so that's kind of like you really did not have the right moment but on the other hand anybody could hypothetically have the right moment it's tough because it comes off of the episode with it was in the 1960s mm-hmm. where we had that pilot where he himself his life was not interesting but it was so important for him to be there so that his his son his, his youngest son his youngest son could influence history in a big way and this episode almost seems to be saying that the individual life actually isn't that important well yeah it's like that it it isn't it isn't like continuation of history the thing the idea is that it isn't one person it's that it's a they describe her as a focal point Mm. and it's this idea that humanity is just as important as humanity as it is as an individual is that every so often forces converge to cause one person to become a focal point, to stand out, to be the person that influences. But that's not just due to them, that's due to history, to the currents of time, to the the, the forces of the time that they're in, the forces of, the, of all of the times before that, all of the people around them. And I quite like the idea that if it's meant to happen, it'll happen, not because of some magical concept of the shape of time, stupid talking rock, but the idea that circumstances come together to bring people up to influence things, to put people in the right time, to put people in the right place. I tend to take the grimmer view on it in that essentially people's individuals' lives are not as important as the march of time. I think I get that from poor Phaser Joe. Oh, poor Phaser Joe. Phasers himself out of existence and seemingly has zero affect on the timeline. None. I think that both are true. And that's, again, that's kind of like the paradox treatment of time travel in Star Trek. It's like, yes, this happened, but also this happened. So did either of them happen? And in the same way, the positive and the negative sides of this both have to be true in order for either of them to be true. Mm. Like, yeah, okay, individuals don't matter. But on the other hand, like the individual in this case where it did work did matter but only because also individuals don't matter. So both are true. I don't, it's not, I don't think it's so much that the individual is that the, the course of history had to proceed in the same way that it did to get the outcome, to get the outcome that they wanted individual or no, that everything had to happen in the same way. And that she experienced love or happiness for a brief moment has made no difference except to her. And to Kirk, who remembers it. It's odd, because I don't know if Star Trek does that in that they were meant to travel back in time to make sure that she got into the accident. Well, that's that's the circular 
story yeah. ever. There's also another thing that Star Trek does super consistently, and that's that, well, how do you know that the, the, the accident, the mistake, the whatever that caused whatever you did to mess up the timeline wasn't meant to happen? Yeah, and I, I and tend like, to take the tack of that. That if it's you're always, going back in time, you're meant to go back in time. Yeah, but are you also meant to go back again and fix whatever you did? Because sometimes, like in this case, Bones goes back, I guess you can say by accident, and screws something up, and they have to go back and stop him from going back. But sometimes it's just they end up back in time mm-hmm. and create an alternate timeline. And then you're looking around and you're going, okay, but who's to say that this isn't as, like, this is as real a world as the one you came from, but you get to decide because you're the only one who knows the timeline has, the timeline has changed. Yeah. So you get to decide whether or not this timeline gets to continue to exist or not. Mm -hmm. You have to bring it back to your universe. And the only time I can think that they don't do it that way is in first contact. Where they're not trying to, to fix they're not trying to get back to their own time, to the world that they left. They're just trying to keep, you know, the Borg from destroying Earth. And then he's like, settle down. We're staying here. <laughs> very noble. It's a very difficult episode to watch. The more I talk about it, the more I like Edith. Yeah. I think, the thing I, th- I think I like what she was meant to be. I mean, there's a lot of... So many hands worked on this episode. Yeah. And it's really, it's, I mean, this often, often happens in original track. And we've said it over and over again, is that you can see all the places where it it could have been incredible. Like you can see what it was trying to do. And I still maintain that this is a very good story. And it leaves me with like these sort of vague and thoughtful and like, I don't even know how to describe it. Melancholic. Melancholic, but also hopeful. Like, it, it, it definitely makes an impression on you. Um, but you can see all the places where what they were trying to do, like, glimmers through all of the rewrites. It's, and that episode, I really, really like. The episode that it yes. wanted to be. I, I don't know. The I person like the they wanted it to be. Oh, yeah. I like the episode that it was. Because it is comedic. It's funny. We get all of the Kirk Spock moments that mm-hmm. I love. And we have, again, my favorite theme of all, Kirk having to make a terrible decision as being the captain and not a man. Yeah. That he gets to play act. Except in this case, it was both. Yeah, well, he gets to play act for two weeks. (laughs) Poor Kirk. At being just a man who's able to fall in love, uncomplicated. That never really does work out for him. No. No, he he is the Black Widow of Star Trek. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and that he gets faced with the reality, the history of it, the burden of it. And the terrible, terrible sacrifices that you have to make. Yeah. Well, that was something. I'm so depressed now. It's a sad episode. It's a good episode. Not the best episode. Because I still like Silicon Monster best. (laughs) City on the Edge of Forever. The title came from one of the first drafts. One of the many first drafts. One of Allison's drafts. um, Where the ruins are actually a city on a hill. And Kirk looks up and he says, it's like a city on the edge of forever. And I guess it was supposed to be some really pretty stock footage. that They never ended up doing, of course. No, no, no. And in the final draft... 
City on the Edge of Forever is New York City. Yes. And there's a lot of poetic uh, prose from this era that describes New York as being like the focal point of how America was going to move out of the Depression or if it wasn't. Mm. Because it was such a big city. There were so many people. And there were so many unemployed and poor people in New York City at that time. It was like the focal point of economic struggle, very literally, since that's where the stock market was. That's true. But also because New York is very romantically envisioned in the American mythos of being like this place where all of all culture is concentrated, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's the heart. It is the heart of culture and of art, mm-hmm. but it is also a place of monstrous poverty. Yeah. Especially in the 1930s. Of extreme polarization. And in this case is literally the point at the edge where history will be decided in a major, major way. It's literally a city on the edge of forever because depending on this tiny little decision. Mm. And this one life in this one city in this in one country. The entire world's history can change. Mm. Hmm. So in a way... The individual really did matter quite a lot. In the way, Edith Keeler is the most important person in history. Yeah. Whether she lives or dies. Mm. 